Well, last Lord's Day we spoke about the subject of thanksgiving. And we focused particularly on the thanksgiving which Christ made during His ministry. To review the matter, Paul commands us to give thanks in everything. But we ask ourselves, even in the bad things? The answer is yes, in everything. Give thanks. As he puts it, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This verse follows right after Paul's previous commandment to pray without ceasing. Therefore, we may very well be giving thanks for the things that we have fervently prayed to God to deliver us from. These two positions are in no wise contrary to each other. No doubt it is God's will that we give thanks in everything, and yet we should also give thanks because... Whatever God has brought our way, even the so-called bad things are according to His will for us, and He promises ultimately are for our good. We ought to be thankful because whatever befalls us, that is the will of God. Consider the things that Jesus was thankful for. He often gave thanks for the food when He fed the 5,000 in the wilderness with five loaves and two fishes. He gave thanks to his Father, didn't he? Think of it. The very one who created all things nevertheless gave thanks for the food. Too often we are not thankful for the things we think we, quote, do for ourselves. We take the credit for our labor, for our plans, for our successes, for our talents. And we rarely think to give thanks to God for them at all. But Christ is our example. He gave thanks for the things He did. He understood that in His humanity all things were of His Father. He often protested that He did nothing of Himself, but only what His Father commanded Him to do. Another example on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened the Scriptures to His two downcast disciples to show them why He had to suffer and die and rise again. And then that evening he prayed for their food as he broke bread with them. He thereby reminded them that the scriptures he had just opened to them foretold the meaning of the symbols of his last supper. Every time we break bread, every time we eat, we too ought to give thanks to God. Not only for the food, but also because we are reminded that Jesus is the bread of life and that our true food is his body and his blood that He physically laid down in death to save us. Jesus gave thanks to God because His gospel was not revealed to the wise and prudent, but rather unto babes. He acknowledged that this was because it seemed good in God's sight to proceed along this manner. Gospel understanding is not based on our wisdom and knowledge and prudence but rather upon the revelation of the gospel to the helpless and to the simple. Jesus said in another place, unless you are converted and become as little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. God has to take away our hard hearts and our sophistication and our self-reliance and our self-righteousness and change us inwardly before we can see and believe the gospel. Then Jesus exclaims that we who do see the gospel are blessed by God. 
because many of the kings and prophets of old had longed to see it, but could not. Now, this is not a congratulations to us, but rather a revelation of God's goodness to us. God has blessed us in this way so that we might see and hear of Christ's salvation. Jesus would have us take notice of it and be thankful for it, as was He. At the grave of Lazarus, his dear friend, Jesus gave thanks to the Father for hearing his prayer to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had already promised that those who believe on him would see the glory of God. The glory of God that was revealed to his people that day is the power of Jesus to raise dead men from the grave. Jesus prayed aloud before the people so that they might believe that the Father had sent Him. And sure enough, many who heard and saw Jesus Christ raise Lazarus from the dead did believe on Him. Christ gave thanks for His last Passover meal. This was His usual custom. But it also highlighted a distinction when He later gave additional thanks for the bread and wine of the Lord's table. Christ told His disciples what those two things symbolized his literal flesh and blood, which he would shortly give as a sacrifice as God's lamb to take away their sins. So his giving separate thanks for them shows that he was giving thanks for what they represented. His death, his blood shed to save us. Think of it, only Jesus understood what they truly meant. So only Jesus could give thanks to his Father for the death that he would suffer. Only hours later, the same Lord Jesus who wept and prayed in Gethsemane mere hours later, over that bitter cup He must drink, had already thanked His Father for the death that He must die to redeem us. Finally, the Lord Jesus exults in and praises God for His resurrection and vindication and how God accepted His afflictions for the saving of His people. In Psalm 22, after Jesus described His humiliation and shame and loss at the hands of wicked men by the will of God and how God forsook Him as He died, Jesus then turns to praising and rejoicing in God for, as we would put it, the way it all turned out. Christ would declare God's righteousness to His people. He would insist that God's people praise Him because God had heard His Son when He died. God had not denigrated or counted as worthless what Jesus did when He was crucified for us. No, God embraced the sacrifice of Jesus, accepting it as precious for the saving of His poor sinful people, and then vindicated Him gloriously at His resurrection. Jesus even rejoices that this gospel of redeeming grace by the death He suffered would be preached to people who hadn't even been born yet that God had done all this. We ought to give thanks like Jesus did in common things as well as for all the trying things that in the end will show God's power, glory, mercy, and deliverance. And for Christ dying to save us, we ought to start giving thanks right now for the resurrection that Christ has promised to each of us who trust in Him. If Jesus could give thanks for the bread and the wine that symbolized His dying, His bloodshedding to forgive our sins. And how can we ever miss an opportunity 
to do likewise. We ought to be giving thanks for all these things constantly, as did Jesus and as Paul commanded us. Now, of course, there's always a little more left that should be said. So this Lord's Day, we come to the coda, thanksgiving, a warning, and a wonder. The warning is this, that our thanksgiving not be for what we have done. Recall the passage in Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter. Jesus gives a parable about certain men who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, and adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now here we have the well-known story, the well-known parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, of course, was self-righteous because he strove to keep all of the law, but Jesus explained that nobody kept all the law, least of all the Pharisees who had modified aspects of it to make it more convenient, and thereby they made null the commandments of God by their traditions, like they wouldn't take care of their family, the elderly parents, because they claimed they had dedicated all that money to the Lord in other ways that they skirted around the law. But he thought he was righteous in his own self, and he listed off some sins he didn't commit and some good things that he did, and he was very pleased with himself. And notice he, he thanks God that he's not like these other people. You see, he's given a nod to God's grace in his life that the Lord has blessed him to make him not like these inferior sinners, but that he is so zealous in the pursuit of his own righteousness. So you see, here is an example, an extreme example of the way people will be giving thanks to the Lord, but it's for the stuff that they do. And it's a subtle problem because, of course, the Lord does help His people to be obedient, to keep His commandments. But it's not because it's anything naturally in ourselves. You know, we're unable by ourselves to do anything righteous or pleasing to God. There must be no thanksgiving in our own self-righteousness or any other accomplishments that we make but rather thanksgiving that God wrought in us any good thing that we perceive. Our thanksgiving is to focus on what God did, not on what we did. But how easy it is to slide off into that error. How the Lord intervened, that's what we're to give thanks for. We're to give thanks for God's power and skill and grace and goodness and not thanks for what we've done. One of the reasons that the Lord Jesus tells us we should pray in secret is so that we won't use our prayers as an opportunity to self-aggrandizement, start reciting all the good and powerful things we've done and give God all the glory. They call that humble bragging in modern language. Rather, we ought to behave like the sheep did at the great judgment that we read about this Lord's Day in Matthew's Gospel, the 25th chapter. It is that great 
judgment where the angels come and Jesus sits in His glory, the King sits in His glory on His throne and judges the nations and He separates the righteous from the unrighteous like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He puts the righteous on His right hand. And the King shall say on His right hand, Come ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave Me meat. I was thirsty, ye gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took Me in naked, and ye clothed Me. I was sick, and ye visited Me. I was in prison, and ye came unto Me. Then shall the righteous answer Him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in? or naked and clothed thee, or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now this is, of course, a very rich passage. We've preached on it many times. One thing that you can observe is that the Lord Jesus counts Himself to be in union with His people. And therefore, whatever is done to his people is done to himself. And you remember he confronted Paul on the road to Damascus with that. Why persecutest thou me? He asked Paul. And Paul, of course, was transformed by this revelation that the believers, the Christians, those who followed after Jesus Christ were the people of God. And that God took umbrage when wicked men persecuted His people, He took it as a personal affront. And this is just a portion of what it means to be unified in Christ as His people. His righteousness is ours by imputation. And whatever is done ill to His people out of wickedness, it's as if He treats it as if it was done to Himself personally. And He will certainly judge it as we could see if we read further in this text. The wicked who did not do these things to His people, these good things, God holds it against them, doesn't He? He says, like you didn't do good to Me. So there are many things one can learn from this text, but notice this, how the Lord's people disclaim Christ's assignment to them of good deeds. Now this is how you can know that they are not trusting in their own righteousness. Because you see, a person who is self-righteous and who is relying upon his self-righteousness, who has not flung all that aside for the righteousness which is by faith in the Lord Jesus, Christ's righteousness imputed to us, the one who is self-righteous is always very, very careful to draw up a complete list of all the good deeds he's done. Like the Pharisee at prayer, he recited some of them. And probably Jesus cut him off in the story because he probably went on and on and on about the good things he had done. But you see, the Lord's people, the righteous, are characterized by their inability to recall or recognize the good things they did because they were not good things they did of their own, but because of the Lord's working in them. And so if they had been self-righteous, they would have said, you know, you're right. Yeah, we did do all those good things, didn't we? In fact, here, let me make sure you don't forget this other good thing I did to the cats down the road or to the poor on the street corner and so forth. 
No, they, they disclaimed what the Lord told them. The Lord's people disclaimed their good deeds. That's because we are to be in a posture where we understand and believe that it is the Lord who is our righteousness. So you see, the heart of the believer in this recitation by the king was more properly that whatever good there is in us, it is your righteousness. It is your righteousness, not ours. Whatever there is in us that is good, it is the righteousness of God laid upon His poor, helpless people. This is a response to the warning of the danger of thanksgiving for the good things we do or the good things that we style ourselves as having done, the pride that the call to thanksgiving might cause to well up in our hearts. You remember in the passage we read by Paul, Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That means the grace is God's gift, the faith is God's gift, and none of that comes from ourselves. It's all the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is no boasting in the salvation of the Lord's people. There is no boasting in anything that we do sincerely in appreciation to the Lord. There is no boasting in any of that. But then he goes on, for we are His workmanship. In other words, it's not our works that are seen in us, but rather it's God's works that are seen in us. If we do anything, if we do anything noble or good or decent or difficult or praiseworthy, know that this is God's work in us. We're like the clay. He's the potter. We don't marvel over the clay, do we, and how beautiful it is. No, we marvel over the work that the potter brings out of what is nothing more than exalted mud. And yet the potter can make beautiful things. We are His workmanship. We are the work product of God. I heard somebody complaining about the word workmanship. And immediately I thought, well, that's just an old-fashioned way of saying work product. That We are the work product of God. Our Lord Jesus is working in us and on us and through us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See, we've been made new creatures, Paul says. All things have become new. He has remade us and is remaking us into the likeness of Christ. And so therefore, we are His work product. We take no credit for what happens in us, but rather God takes the credit. We give Him the glory. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, notice the purpose, notice the inevitable outcome is that when Christ Jesus, when we are created anew in Christ Jesus, it is for the purpose of good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So it was always God's determination that when He saved poor sinners by faith, by grace, nothing in themselves, not by their own works, not by their self-righteousness, that even after that, 
There would be no self-righteousness. All the righteousness would be the Lord's and none of ours. All the works would be His manufacture and none of ours. And He intended all along that we should walk in those good works which the Lord creates anew in us. And this leads me to a detour a little bit. This is the problem with the libertarian free will which says that I decide. I decided everything. It was my choice. I I choose. God just stands back. He doesn't interfere because He wants it to be my free choice. And so I decide to believe on Jesus. I decide to obey Jesus. I decide to follow after Jesus in good works. Faith isn't a gift from God. It's something that I choose to believe of my own power. You see, this is a parallel to the warning about thanksgiving. That we give thanks that we chose. And we give thanks that I had faith and so forth. And of course, the danger is that if it's our faith that we ginned up, then later on we'll find out that it might not be as perfect as we thought it was. And we'll start to wonder, well, you know, maybe I really didn't choose. Maybe it was a defective choice. Maybe uh, I really don't truly believe. And we'll start to inspect the quality of our faith because we believe that it is all of ourselves and we forget that it is the gift of God. And it's God that gives us faith because we can't believe. We're dead in our sins. We're unable to do the things which the Lord requires. He gives us the faith. And the power is not in the faith, it's in the power of Christ to save. And the smallest and weakest of faith can lay hold on the sacrifice of Christ and be saved. And the gift that God gives us in true faith is never taken away or repented of. The gifts of God are not to be repented, the Scriptures tell us. And so the more we shift off onto ourselves as our responsibility, our choice, what we have generated in our own hearts, the less confidence we can really have because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. The whole idea that God stands back while we decided these things It leads to the question, well, why don't others decide to believe? And if you've been a Christian for long and you really understand these things, you realize that's not the question. The question is, why did I believe? How could I possibly believe? It's a miracle. Belief is a miracle, and that's why it's a gift of God and why it's from the Lord. We don't work miracles in ourselves. Only God can do that. But it brings up the question, why do other people, why don't those other people decide to believe? And the natural conclusion, well, it's just something a little better in me than them, isn't it? I was a little more thoughtful. I was a little more logical. I was a little more humble. I just thought through it all and reached this logical conclusion all by myself. There's something better in us. Why? Because we believed and they didn't. And so pride can well up in us. So what we need to do is reject the false doctrine of libertarian free will. The Bible says that we have free will. We're free to do whatever we want to do. That's the problem. What we want to do is sin and rebel against God. That's what the Scriptures teach us. God doesn't come down here and force our wills by some mechanical means. 
We do what we want to do. The problem is what we want to do is we want to sin. What this all does is remove the deliberate loving work of God to change our hearts, to change our sinful wills, to take away our stony hearts. You see, to lost men, everything seems totally free, doesn't it? We decide what ice cream we want to eat tomorrow or whether we're going to eat Fruit Loops or Cap'n Crunch for breakfast or Special K or Total or Grape Nuts. To lost men, everything seems like totally free will because we don't know how morally broken we are in our sins. And we pretend we can choose good ourselves and choose to believe and to trust Jesus for ourselves. But if you've prayed earnestly for lost people, it'll slowly begin to dawn upon you that God's just going to have to reach down and practically make these people believe on Him because it's pretty obvious that they're not going to do it on their own. And that's when the real praying starts, you see. We have to pray that God will work a work of conviction and change and conversion and regeneration on lost people because otherwise they are dead in their sins. God's Word tells us that we are unable. Jesus said we must be born again. That's not something that we can orchestrate or arranged to happen any more than a baby can arrange to be born the first time. It's something that's done to us by the Holy Ghost without our consent even. And so our thanksgiving for our salvation is all toward God and, key point, all in spite of ourselves. And as long as we can keep in mind that anything we give thanks for needs to be in spite of ourselves, not because we somehow did anything good or noble or righteous or just or brave, but rather because God worked in us to perform His will. All our thanksgiving must be towards God in spite of ourselves. We love to sing that song that we actually did sing this morning. Isaac Watts asked the question, Why was I made to hear Thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Now Watts is making a song out of the parable that Jesus made of the rich man who threw a feast and nobody would come. His friends wouldn't come. His neighbors wouldn't come. And finally he told his servants to go out into the highways and hedges and drag up whatever people they could find and compel them to come into his feast. And Watts is taking this as a metaphor for the feast of salvation through Jesus Christ, the gospel feast of deliverance, of everlasting life. And the singer asked the question, why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. And the conclusion was, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." Now somebody on Twitter objected to the phrase, "'Sweetly forced us in,' and I had to point out he was merely versifying the parable that Christ told about how it is that people 
come to believe and to trust in Jesus and to partake of the feast. And the parable says that they were forced in. Now, we don't believe that the Lord uses any kind of mechanical force or anything such as that. The point is, is that we were dead and God brought us to the feast. God changed our mind and our will away from hatred and disobedience and love for sin, changed our hearts that we might come to Him, that we might love Him, that we might have trust in Him. And that was a sweet thing. Even if we use this phrase that He sweetly forced us in. Because nobody that's been sweetly forced into Christ has ever complained about it, have we? No, we're glad whatever it took for the Lord to bring us to Jesus for salvation. Whatever it took, let it be so. Let it be blessed in our sight. Well, that was the warning. Now there's the wonder. There is a wonder in our thanksgiving. And we read this morning, Matthew 26, 1-5, came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that is, right after He finished this discussion of the final judgment, He said unto His disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now there's a very stark reference to what Christ had purpose to accomplish in a very short time. So he comes from these glorious heights of describing the Lord Jesus reigning as glorious King and judging. He descends almost immediately to this betrayal and crucifixion. And here it became impossible for the disciples to be happy, much less thankful. No way, they thought, can this be good. No way can this be good. Why, it would be the end of all their hopes that Christ as Messiah would rescue them from their oppressors, bring them a political salvation, restore the kingdom of David, crush all their foes beneath their feet. Now he's talking about being crucified in two days. How can we be thankful for that? No way. What if we were transported back? What if you and I were transported back to that time with all that we know about the death of Christ and all that we know about how it was necessary for the redemption of His people? Would we have been able to convince the disciples? No, no, no. You should give thanks for this. This is a good thing. No, Jesus being taken out and crucified on the cross, that's a good thing. Here, let us explain to you why. Do you think that we could have explained it to them? Worse still, do you think that if we were transported back into that time and were faced with this reality, would we be thankful? Could we be thankful even if we knew what the glorious end would be? You know, there is a sense in which it might seem selfish of us to be thankful at the prospect of Christ being crucified to save us from our sin. Maybe that's why the Lord Jesus, and maybe that's why the eyes of His people were holding from seeing 
the blessed consequences that the Scriptures had very, very carefully laid out as we've spoken of many times recently. That there was no question at all what the result of the death of Jesus would be. There was no question at all that it was foretold, that it was necessary, that it was essential for the saving of His people. No question at all how glorious the results would be. Maybe it's best that they didn't understand those things because of how much it would have broken their hearts that the Lord Jesus should have to suffer so for their sins in order to redeem us. Jesus is about to redeem His loved ones, and yet it is the most horrible thing ever done to anyone in the history of the world. That a perfect, innocent, righteous, harmless man with power to raise the dead and heal all sickness, actually God manifest in the flesh, that such a one, such a one is about to be cruelly murdered by wicked men. It is a terrible thing by wicked men that He had created Himself, but that it will result in eternal salvation for the Lord's people. The exaltation of Jesus to the heights of glory, power, and splendor, and unceasing praise and thanksgiving from angels and from the redeemed. This is the wonder of thanksgiving that the thing that seemed most horrible to the Lord's people turns out to be the supreme act for which we give thanks. That our inability to see the consequences of what God purposes and our inability, therefore, to give thanks for all things is best displayed in the consequences of the worst thing that the world ever saw happen. The murder of the King of glory. You know, what Jesus did for us there turns out to bring the highest glory to God in the highest and all our eternal happiness, joy, and rejoicing. And even now, our worship and our praise. Who could have foreseen it? None of the Lord's people did, not at the time it took place. And therefore, they were unthankful for it. When they should have been thankful, had they only known, and that's the way we should be thankful for whatever God brings into our life and circumstances, because He will work all these things out for good, whether we can imagine a path towards that end or not. That's why we must give thanks in everything. Because God works His mighty purposes in this way. And only He knows the end, not us. Part of our faith is to trust Him without reservation that He knows best for His people. And the best example is the putting to death of our dear Lord Jesus. They deserve the first Lord's table in confusion and despair and darkness. We celebrate it in joy, knowledge, and anticipation of what more is to come. The redemption of our bodies and the resurrection Christ has promised to us 
We could never be raised to life in Jesus had He not offered up Himself as God's Lamb to take away our sin. So no matter how wrong it seemed at the time, now we understand why thanksgiving should be made and was made by Jesus at the Lord's table. Even if nobody then thought it nice or wise to join in with Him. But afterwards, you see, we see the truth of what Samuel Medley wrote in his hymn. Now, in a song of grateful praise, to Christ the Lord our voice will raise. With all thy saints will join the tale. Christ Jesus hath done all things well. All worlds His glorious power confess. His wisdom all His works express. But oh, His love our tongues could tell. Christ Jesus hath done all things well. And since our souls have known His love, what mercies has He made us prove? Mercies which all our praise excel. For Jesus hath done all things well. And when on that bright day we rise and join the anthems of the skies in heavenly songs, this note shall swell. Christ Jesus hath done all things well. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. And let's recall what it means to us and what it represents to us and how only the Lord Jesus rejoiced and gave thanks in it at the time. But now we look back to see what it was that He meant and why it was He was thankful. And we join in thanksgiving for the thing He has done in dying to save us from our sin. Let's give thanks for the bread first that pictures the body that He offered up as an offering for sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice in the sacrifice that Jesus made. We rejoice in the fact that He gave thanks for it. We rejoice in the example that He therefore provides to us to give thanks in everything that You bring upon us. For this is the will, Your will in Christ Jesus concerning us. We pray that we might not give thanks in vainglory or to toot our own horns or for our own self-righteousness, but rather that we always give thanks unto the Lord. Unto the Lord alone be all the glory and praise and thanksgiving. We thank You that He was obedient unto death. We thank You that He delivered up His body to be broken at Calvary as our Lamb of sacrifice. We thank You that You have received His offering for sin and judged it to be totally acceptable, that He took away our sin, and now there's no sin left for us, but You have brought us into Your presence brought us into Your presence with exceeding joy. Give us thankful hearts for all things and cause us to be humble and to give the praise only to You for whatever good works You work in and through us. To Your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us.
the scriptures tell us after they had supped that he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, Drink ye all of it, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Well, let's stand and sing Isaac Watts' hymn at number 87 in the Big Blue Book. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Number 87.